Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. When I was diving into the research of John Quincy Adams, I found myself increasingly drawn to the parallels between father and son. Both were lifelong public servants. Both had extensive diplomatic experience. Both were one-term presidents. And as I was thinking about this, I knew I wanted to chat with someone to review these two men of history and their similarities. So, I invited a fellow podcaster friend, Kenny Ryan, onto the show. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did, and I hope that when you're done listening to this episode, that you go check Kenny out over at his podcast, The Abridged Presidential Histories. I want to provide my normal disclaimer that our conversation was held via Zoom, so apologies ahead of time for any dip in audio quality. Enjoy, friends. Hey, peeps. Welcome back. With me today is fellow podcaster, history lover, and presidential guru, Kenny Ryan. He is the host of the podcast, Abridged Presidential Histories, which gives listeners a brief but thorough overview of our past presidents. It is one of my favorite history podcasts out there, and I'm so happy to have him with me today. Welcome, Kenny. It is a pleasure to be with you, Alicia. Oh, thanks. So today we are going to chat about two men who had formidable and impactful careers, but who for most do not make the top ranks of presidents we should know about, John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams. While John Adams has recently received a bit of a resurgence and newfound appreciation, the same cannot be said about his son. And when analyzing the father and son duo, there are so many similarities in their career trajectories. And I thought, who better to discuss this with than someone who has done their own meticulous research, though I know he will fight me on that. (laughs) I've read a few books. I like the presidents. I've talked to people. (laughs) And so before we dive into those interesting men, let people know a little bit about you and your show. Sure. Uh, Uh, you you kind of gave me a good introduction earlier. Bridge Presidential Histories is a podcast that covers the uh, successes, setbacks, and scandals of each president in chronological order, starting with George Washington. I'm currently uh, in the middle of Teddy Roosevelt. And also, we'll dive in and do historian interviews. So if you uh, that comes in maybe around the time of Buchanan. So in more recent months or the past year, I guess I'd say, uh, we'll also die, have, have interviews with historians to hit some of the more uh, obtuse or, you know, like the parts of their story that really do deserve a bit more digging into. It's it's a super great podcast and I love it. You know, I, I also listen to Jerry of uh, the presidencies as well. But the you both of you uh just bring such such fascinating uh perspectives and interesting stories. And so um I always find myself whenever I'm getting ready to talk about an administration, I'm like, okay, what has Kenny said? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I sometimes like to think of myself as like the gateway drug, the really accessible, like hour or less. And then Jerry is the, like, you're really wanting to go hardcore on a bender yes. for a weekend and learn all about someone. He does a fantastic job. <laughs> yes, he does. You both do. All right. So I remember on your episode about John Quincy or JQA, as he was known, <laughs> that you mentioned he was your favorite of the earliest presidents. So I'm curious, why does he get that honor? Well, it's it's certainly not for anything he did as president because he was an absolute failure of a president. Like the guy accomplished nothing. Absolutely. He's there for four years. He does diddly squat. He has no friends. And then he's like defeated in a landslide. So it's obviously not because of his actual presidency. The reason I love him, there's two, but the first reason is after he loses the presidency. You know, when, when you're expected to just like go crawl off and like be forgotten, his hometown elects him to Congress and he finds like a, a new voice as this crusader against slavery. And he serves 20 years in Congress. I mean, he fights things like p- the South tries to shut him up with unconstitutional rules, like the gag rule. He represents uh, slaves trying to get their freedom in the Amistad case. And then he has like the most epic death ever. We're at the <laughs> end of this long life. He's in the Congress and they're about to have a vote. Mexican-American war just happened. The United States won. We've gotten all this land. Uh, just a simple vote of thank you to the generals. And even there, as we'll discuss, John Quincy, he's very principled. And he's the one person who's like, no! <laughs> and they're like, oh, damn it, we'll do a roll call. And they start going through names. And they say John Quincy. And he stands up to protest. And then he lurches to his side. And he grabs the guy next to him. And he collapses. And they yell, oh, my God, John Quincy's dying. And he gets taken to the speaker's room. And he dies protesting this war. And his last words, epic last words, are like, I'm at the end of the world, but I am composed. Something like that. So just chills, chills, awesome death, uh, which, you know, not every president gives us. True. And very selfish of some of them to just like (laughs) peacefully sleep. I want like stuff that, you know, you could have a whole movie scene around. Yes. Um, And then also like a fascinating first part of his life before the presidency He's probably one of the most important, if not the most important diplomats in United States history. He's going to help us get uh, Florida from Spain. He's going to negotiate the boundary w- between United States and Canada and Britain. He's going to help end the war of 1812 without us losing like everything. Like this guy does so much. So it's, it's an amazing body of work. And I'm almost done. The, just the lesson <laughs> of, you know, he was in the presence. So you expect that to be the peak of his career. And he fails, but he still has a brilliant second act. And so there's a lesson in John Quincy Adams' story of, like, you're going to hit setbacks in life. You might hit the thing that, like, you think this is supposed to be your moment. This is supposed to be the peak of your life, and it disappoints you. But there's no reason that you can't find another peak and can't find another second act. And so I think it's just a beautiful story. All right, all right. I guess I can understand why he's one of your, the favorite of the earliest presidents. <laughs> I'm glad I've sold you. <laughs> I know I, I struggled with him a lot. I, I really appreciate and uh, commend his diplomatic service, but yeah. I'm with you. I'm kind of, I, I tend to, on this show at least, stick to their administrations and I kind of knew going in. I'm like, well, there's not <laughs> a whole lot you can talk no. about that. No. So. Um, so kind of getting to our topics, I wanted to start a little bit when we're talking about these two gentlemen by talking about their family lives and the impacts on their respective careers. Each of these men put the, a lot of pressure on their sons. So Adams with JQA and JQA with his own children, with uh, Charles Francis being the most receptive to the pressure. 
There seems like there was an intense desire to have the family dedicated to public service. Where do you think Adams found this inspiration and and how did that influence John Quincy? You know, I I think it kind of came in a roundabout way from John Adams himself based on the way his life went. You know, he, he starts as just kind of a country lawyer, you know, guy out there, nothing amazing. But he he becomes one of the first voices for independence from England. And, you know, we have this cast of founding fathers. And we usually think of like, and George Washington's the real founding father because he won the war, as you would think of. There's an argument to be made that John Adams is really the real founding father because he's the one that did the most to get the ball rolling. And the thing is, though, like if you get that ball rolling and then you succeed and you've launched this revolution, you get your own country, your whole legacy is kind of wrapped up in that thing working. You know, you don't want to feel like, yep, I made that revolution happen and it turned out to suck. That was a a big mistake. Everybody's going to blame you forever and ever and ever. So I think he then had this investment of like, I have to make sure this works. And I think the family legacy was like, we have to make sure America works. We are the family that, that wanted more than anyone else for this to happen. And it is on us to make sure it succeeds. So this this is a part of a legacy of family service. It's also wrapped up in what the whole American ideal was. You know, this was this crazy idea that instead of having a monarchy, people who are born to rule, it's going to be a citizens. It's going to be anybody. And it's not just about who gets to be president. It's about who gets to be every single other position, which is borrowed. You know, that was a long British tradition below the monarchy of, of public service. But it, it became just that much more important. And I think those are the two areas where they really drop from. Yeah, I think for me, what the one thing that always struck me about Adams is that, you know, he was he was vain, a little, little vain. Oh, absolutely. Little, little pompous, right? I, yeah. I, he had the goods to back it up. So I, you know, I, I give him. I give and him he was that. fully aware. He was yes, fully yes, aware. Yes, and he called himself out. So again, I have to give him kudos there too, right? Yeah. Um, but I feel like one thing that I always kind of picked up on is this sense of like they the world or the country or the people didn't really know. It didn't really like, he didn't get the, I think the, the celebration that he felt like maybe he deserved. And I think it was tied up in his honor. And so I don't wonder if like part of that is, you know, well, I never got my due. So this family name, I'm going to make sure that it continues on with my children. Something that, you know, it's my little armchair, Psycho- yeah, the, there there might be something to that. You know, <laughs> the Adams men, it's very true. They all felt perpetually underappreciated. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All of them. And that might have st- made them strive to, to do even more. Like they, they had a chip on their shoulder. They for had sure. a chip on their shoulder and it motivated them. Yes, for sure. And kind of looking at John Quincy specifically when thinking of like this push to mold their sons and their image, how, how do you think it impacted John Quincy's trajectory in life? John Quincy's trajectory was hugely impacted by uh, not, not just his dad, his mother too, mm-hmm. but you, you know, he's growing up and the formative years, his dad is off playing revolutionary, you know, <laughs> his dad's off at Continental Congress after Continental Congress. And he's being raised by his his mom, his mom's educating him. But everywhere he goes, like I was saying, there's this argument that John Adams is like, could be the father of the United States. Everywhere he goes, he's being he's being told that like these people are like, what your dad's doing is amazing. You know, and, and your dad is out there serving us. He's out there serving. And so. When he sees that appreciation, he really does learn to value this public service and this life of serving the country and is inspired to follow in his dad's footsteps. And he's also the son 
who goes with his dad over to Europe. You know, when when his dad gets gets sent to Europe to um, represent the United States, uh, if I remember right, you know, he, he's about 11 years old um, or, or maybe 14. I forget which age he goes with his dad and he spends years and now he's getting he's studying at some of the finest European institutions. Mm-hmm. But he's also there with his dad as his dad's negotiating these things, as his dad's advocating for the United States, as his dad is sometimes not appreciated by these other countries, but he sees that change over time. He just gets to be a fly on the wall for such amazing things. And so it's only natural. Like, of course, he follows his dad's footsteps into the diplomatic service. And he, because he was with his dad, he just has a wealth of experience that no other American had at that point. Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned this on your episode, I believe, that you did about John Quincy Adams. That's a sense of hero worship, right? That yeah. he just so much looked up to his father. And I I think it it had to have heavily played, you know, his father and obviously to Abigail playing into this sense of this duty that he had, right? Because he wasn't really that big of a fan of being a lawyer. He was much <laughs> more interested in like science and literature and art and poetry. And so I just always think, you know, was that maybe part of the reason why he just never could seem to, you know, have this, you know, memorable presidential career is because, you know, he did this because he watched his father do it. And, you know, his his mother came in and said, OK, you know, you you need to make sure that the Adams name is remembered. Um, yeah. I, I always like a little bit of history. What if like what would have happened had had there not been such pressure? Right. Yeah. You know, one other thing I want to mention, too, is Abigail's importance in this, too, because he's at home. His dad's off playing revolutionary. He sees his mom being incredibly supportive of that, mm-hmm. you know, and loving of that. Like, if imagine if he'd been at home and the whole time, like, Abigail was resentful mm-hmm. and like, you're a stupid father left us, you know, like, yeah. it would be a totally different life. So, I mean, the, the Abigail-John partnership is so important. Mm-hmm. And, and it, that that's another heavy influence in shaping John Quincy's interest in uh, pursuing that life. You you also talk about how it influences career decisions. Uh, this is like a very strong theme that will probably come back to many times is uh, John Adams was fiercely nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. And that would be to the detriment of his administration. And it would be to the detriment of John Quincy's administration as John Quincy would also mm-hmm. be fiercely nonpartisan. These are two guys who, when they conceived democracy, they conceived it the way we today always say, like, it should be. Like, it should just be people putting out the best ideas, and the best ideas win, right? That's what that's the game that they played, and it's why they lost, because it unfortunately just doesn't really work in the system we've built. Right. So I, I'd say that's another heavy influence and uh, similarity between their careers. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, since you mentioned... Um, you know, the the marriage between John and Abigail and how it was this kind of this partnership. Um, I, you know, I one thing I noticed was that both men had very politically astute wives, but from an outsider's perspective, it really seems as if their relationships were vastly, vastly different. And so I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on the differences between their their marriages? I think one of the the big differences is the kind of different origin story each mm-hmm. one has. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, John Adams married Abigail. And they were both basically nobodies, right. you know? I mean, Abigail was from a well-off family, but she wasn't even John's first choice. He was at her house to visit some other woman the day yep. he met her, yep. you know? And Abigail's mother, she disapproved of John Adams. He's just a simple country lawyer. What's he ever going to do with his life, you know? But they overcame that. And they were on much more of this equal footing mm-hmm. partnership, building their relationship together. John Quincy Adams, on the other hand, he married uh, Louisa Catherine Johnson, 
when John Quincy was the president's son, yeah. <laughs> you know, the son of like a founding father. And she was the daughter of an American consul to England, you know? So it, it's a totally different expectation of what they were walking into in that mm-hmm. relationship. And I, so, so it wasn't a, we're building this partnership together. It's right. we're walking and expecting that the, what we're going to get. And so I, I think that those different foundations played a, a significant role in the differences of the relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, though, when I do a compare and contrast, right, it, it seemed like John and, and Abigail, like you mentioned, and perhaps it's because of their origin stories, they they very much seemed much more in tune with each other. And yeah. it was very much a partnership. Um, she very freely shared her opinions. And, yes. you know, he leaned on her for advice, not that he always took it, yeah. right? But he, right. he listened, which yeah. is more than a lot of men in that time. A hundred percent. Yeah. And then you compare it to kind of John Quincy and Louisa and how like he very much harbored this feeling for this Mary Fraser for his whole life and that he basically married Louisa because, well, he's of the marrying age. And <laughs> yeah, I guess she'll do. Right. It just um, he seemed to kind of waffle in that relationship. And uh, I always just kind of thought that that was so... It was so interesting because she was in her own way, very helpful for his career, right? Yeah, she she grew up in Europe. And so she had this, um, you know, the the education of how to hold court, basically, yeah. and deal with all of the aristocrats. Um, and he, it, he didn't seem to appreciate that until later in life. And I just I was, uh, I was always kind of baffled by that, especially considering the example that he saw, he saw his mom and dad, who yeah. were, you know, pretty much partnership but um you know maybe it has to do with the fact that they were so separated so he didn't get to see that that you know there there was actually a line in a tv show i was watching recently that made me think of of these this dichotomy here uh the show is our flag means death it's a comedy Mm -hmm. show about pirates worth checking out (laughs) and uh there's a couple who are being brought to an arranged marriage they're aristocrats and and one of them says to their parent like i kind of thought i'd get married for love and the parent is like, commoners marry for love. We marry for money, you know? And and that, that's it. Like when John and Abigail got married, it was for love. But John Quincy was of a different class. And so was Louisa Catherine uh, Johnson. And so it, it felt a little more arranged, a little more of kind of like you said, well, I guess I'm of the age. I guess is the type of person I should marry, you know? Uh, and, and so that just it creates a whole different dynamic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so while we're kind of talking about how they approach things, the other thing that kind of struck me is that both men very much had their eye on being known to history, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, I, so I just, I, I was always kind of like, oh, wow, like you very much were of the moment. And so what are your thoughts on kind of why this was and, and maybe perhaps where it came from for both of these men? You know, I, I think a big part of it is they both read a lot of books. <laughs> and and there's something, too, when you read enough history, you start wanting to be like, I want to be someone in one of these books someday. I want to be someone that somebody else was like, took their time to write about, or, or this person did enough that they're worth remembering, that they had an impact beyond, you know, the 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 house that they lived in. So I think there's that aspect to it. I think there's also a spe- aspect of, and this ties back to what we've been talking about with John Adams. Now, a lot of people had tremendously high respect for John Adams, but nobody held John Adams in higher regard than John Adams did. You know, (laughs) (laughs) he believed he had the talents that history calls on in great men to change the world. And he did change the world, you know? 
So I, I think very much there's that. And I think JQA, John Quincy, he definitely inherited that from his father and, and this you know, desire to protect the family legacy, to leave his own legacy. The United States, like Adams is in the United States is are like one in the same. And let's leave that legacy and make that page on history. Um, that said, there is one important caveat that I want to throw on this. And that is that both, you know, as much as they definitely did want to be known to history, they both valued principles. Mm-hmm. They're sticky, sticky, important, inflexible principles more <laughs> than glory and more than legacy, which is why, you know, they had one-term presidencies and, and John Quincy's mostly forgotten, you know. It would be their undoing. As much as they did want to be known to history, as much as they wanted to leave that impact, even more, they had certain things that they <laughs> believed. Exactly. <laughs> they were not bending. Yes, I I caught that as well, and I I wonder too because I know that John Adams Wright was the one that got John Quincy to start his his diary, his journal, and it took a couple of starts and stops because again that wasn't really something that initially he was into, and then once he started, I think he probably realized the value of being able to keep this huge record of. And he saw so much cool stuff. Yeah, so you know, so much cool stuff. We're very lucky that John Adams told John Quincy, "Hey, write everything down." <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Like we talk about how John Quincy is Prince, he's kind of forgotten. But if you read any histories from like you know the first like eighteen hundred to eighteen forty, eighteen thirty ish. You're going to find quotes from John Quincy in there because his diary is so rich. He's such a good writer, too. There's like so many fun lines or zingers or things in there. It's so detailed. So he 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 casts this. He's molding history, even where people don't realize it. Mm -hmm. You know, you read a biography of anybody else from that time. There's going to be quotes and there's going to be just information that you don't realize came from John Quincy, but it came from John Quincy's diary. It's not quoted to him. So hugely influential. Yeah. And just to touch on that and to kind of share my respects to him again is when I was searching for information about Elizabeth Monroe, I Mm. was, I could not find anything, right? There's just not a dearth of information. And, you know, there's that whole thing of James probably burned all their letters. And so just not a lot of primary material. And I know the, like the handful of descriptions of her, of that time that I could find that wasn't from James himself was from John Quincy Adams. And I'm like, Oh, well, there we go. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Because otherwise I would have no other anecdotal, like, this is who she was and this is how she was perceived. He, he yeah. is like one of the brightest lights we have on the people and events of that era. Yep. Absolutely. Agreed. Okay. So um, we've been kind of talking about this. And I I think you also did such a wonderful job in, in your episode specifically about John Quincy Adams, uh, about how both of these men were very apolitical. They put the country over party. They put the country over their families for you know an extended period of their lives. And so for both men, this really spelled doom for their administrations, right? We've already kind of said, hey, spoiler alert, they only served one term. They were yeah. going to be a part of their principles come hell or high water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you discussed on, your, on one of your episodes about these men, how politics really requires some relationship building. And so I'm curious, why do you think these two men never got there? Is it just about the principles or is there something else at play, do you think? You know, I, I, I 
think it's it's principles. It's especially John Adams. Like John Adams held grudges. Mm-hmm. You know, John Adams did not forgive people. Anyone who's seen or listened to Hamilton knows how John <laughs> Adams blows up, you know, at Hamilton, who should have been like he was the only other Federalist. It's kind of you two guys like at the head of this make this thing work. But he, he could not get over the grudge. And so I, I, I think that was a big thing that played into that and he just so opposed the idea of, of party building um john quincy adams i think a little more interesting because john quincy adams could build relationships mm-hmm. he just seemed to have a sensitivity around what types that he showed and what you should do with those i mean you you don't be as successful as a diplomat as he was without building relationships that's what diplomacy is you know he was just so fiercely anti-partisan and i think you know the more I thought about it, the more that he might have felt justified to think like this, this position is going to work better for me than his dad, because he comes becomes president right after Monroe in this era of good mm-hmm. feelings. Mm-hmm. The Federalist Party really is basically dead. Everybody is pretending and saying like, oh, we're all, you know, Jeffersonian Democrats now. Like there's not really parties anymore. And so he he thinks he can just be that guy who puts out the good ideas and everyone will listen and they'll go with the good ideas. But instead he seems to be blind and, and maybe willfully blind. Cause the whole, you know, the founding fathers always said there's not supposed to be factions. Right. Factionalism is bad. You know, Washington warns them. Everybody agrees. Factionalism is bad, but then a lot of them just can't help themselves. <laughs> you know, Thomas Jefferson makes a party. Alexander Hamilton makes a party and John Quincy Adams, he could help himself. You know, when right. he runs for president, there's five candidates you know, in that election. And they're regional and they're starting to pull the country in like different ways. By the time he leaves, there's the Jackson Democratic Party, you know, that Jackson yeah. and Van Buren built. And that ba- and that party runs until the Whigs rise to fight them, you know. So I don't know if, if it was, I, I think some of it is they are prickly people, they're proud people, they hold yeah. grudges. I think some of it is they do know how to build relationships they just are so opposed to parties that they are not going to use relationships that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, one of the things you we've, we've talked about, you know, a lot is, is that principles. And I think because they were so principled in maintaining independence that they like yeah. sometimes did that to like spite their own face. It's like, okay, you're not compromising the nation if you just give a little. Right. Um, and I think for John Adams, at least my, my reading of him is, by the time he got to the president presidency, he was, you know, he felt, first of all, that like his country had kind of forsaken him with this vice presidency role. So I, I think, oh, he yeah, kinda, he had, yeah. <laughs> you know, so his chip on his shoulder only got yeah. bigger and bigger and bigger so that by the time he was president, he was kind of like, yeah, no, this, this yes, it's about time. And, and that's kind of what drove him. And in, instead of, you know, trying to reach across the aisle, quote unquote, or or trying to find um, some sort of, you know, middle ground with with people and within his administration, right? Because he even kind of he alienated his own cabinet, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of my reading of of how he's always kind of how he decided to approach the presidency. Yeah. 
both father and son argued some pretty epic, if not career-defining, court cases, Adams with his defense of the British soldiers over their involvement in the Boston Massacre, and JQA representing the African captives who were on board the Amistad. So what are the similarities that you see in those two cases and the precedent that they established? Sure. Let me recap both cases real quick. Sure. You know, um, because like the Amistad, I feel like a lot of people haven't heard of that. And Boston Massacre, I think people are mostly aware there was a Boston Massacre. (laughs) So let's start with the Boston Massacre. This starts, this is, you know, before the revolution really kicks off. There are a bunch of drunk colonists in Boston throwing snow, ice, and rocks at a lonely British sentry. Uh, Eight more redcoats join the sentry to back them up. And more drunk colonists join in the rock throwing. The soldiers are told, do not fire, but a gun is discharged. And then all the soldiers open fire. Something that happens, by the way, like all the times in history. Yeah. All the time. (laughs) Uh, Five people die. Now, at the trial, John Adams defends the soldiers. He represents them. And this is a very risky thing for him to do, but he does it because of his principles, of those darned principles. This is the trial where he gives his famous quote, facts are stubborn things. He points out, he reminds everybody, he pulls out the witnesses. The soldiers were told not to fire. The soldiers had reason to fear for their lives because of the way the mob was acting. Right. And he got seven out of nine acquitted. And the, the quote, that I love so much, and I wish this was the quote of John Qu- of John Adams that everybody knew, is, quote, it is more important that innocence be protected than it is that guilt be punished. Mm-hmm. I wish that was the core value, you know, of the United States. Yeah. Um, that was what he was doing there. It's taking this principled stand of it's more important that innocence be protected than guilt be punished. So that's the Boston Massacre. Amistad, the Amistad case. So the origin of this one, there's a Spanish ship carrying captured slaves from Africa across the ocean. The slaves broke free and they overpowered the crew at sea. The white crew was told, take us back to Africa, but the crew took them to the United States instead. When they got there, they they were captured and jailed. Now, there was a question that arose. What should be done with these escaped slaves? Should they be punished? As escaped slaves, as pirates, did they pirate this boat? Or should they be set free because they were freaking kidnapped from Africa? <laughs> the first court, district court, said, he, you know, you got to set them free. It sided with the slaves. But at that point, you had President Martin Van Buren in the office. And Martin Van Buren was about to run for election, and he really needed the Southern votes. So he had his attorney general appeal the decision to the Supreme Court of the United States. At this point, the defense team was running out of money because, surprise, surprise, slaves did not have a lot of money to pay for lawyers. Um, it, it was all been contributions, and those had run out. John Quincy Adams joined the defense now to help out. The Supreme Court at this time was mostly Southern slaveholders, which is what happens when for 32 of the past 36 years, you had Southern slaveholders in the presidency. They appoint Southern slaveholders to the Supreme Court. So he is, this court is stacked against him as he's trying to argue that these people should be allowed to free. And he argues, he says, look beyond contemporary politics and look to your legacy and your God. Mm-hmm. And he somehow threads the needle and he strikes through and he touches those guys. Those slave-owning Supreme Court people, they give him a shocking victory for the, the Amistad uh, captives and they are mm-hmm. set free. So what's the similarity? The similarity 
is that they both took principled, unpopular positions. Mm -hmm. You know, it was not a popular thing after the Boston Massacre to be a Boston lawyer (laughs) representing the Redcoats that killed five people. It was also not a popular thing nationally to be representing the Amistad cases. John Quincy Adams did. He got a lot of hate mail after Mm -hmm. this, a lot of hate mail. So that's the similarity is that they both ended up serving in these incredibly huge, like the Amistad case. Remember the president is directly involved in this. This is a huge national Steven Spielberg has made a movie about it. (laughs) It is a huge case. And the Boston massacre. I mean, we've all heard of the Boston massacre, but the, the, the case that came after it is I think even more important in what it says about our country, our ideals and what we say we aspire to be. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I just, I, I, loved just the similarities of the, again, taking that stance, being principled, knowing kind of being true to yourself and knowing, you know, I I might not win this and this might not win me any friends, but (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the day, I'm going to be able to to put my head on the pillow. And I think that's, you know, admirable in in both instances. And when looking at father and son um, and their presidencies, Basically, it's it's very eerie how similar their experiences were, considering that, you know, they were nearly three decades apart. I mean, from maintaining their predecessor's cabinet, much to their uh, demise, to being (laughs) undercut by their vice president all the way down to even, you know, their elections were a little iffy, although I'd say JQA's uh, election. (laughs) JQA's, yeah. (laughs) A little bit more iffy or a little bit more um, uh, Allows for the, the, political the uh, <laughs> you know, he lost the uh, popular vote. He didn't win the Electoral College. We still became president. So good job. Yeah, good yeah, job, exactly. Bro. I mean, yeah. way to manage up, right? Yeah. Uh, and then also, obviously, being voted out of office uh, after their first term. So, I, you know, I was trying to rack my brain of like, how, how did this happen? So curious, why do you think their experiences were so similar, despite their presidencies being decades apart and kind of like a different kind of political eras? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that they did have that same result. And there are some similar roots of it, the, this fierce uh, nonpartisanship, mm-hmm. this fierce refusal to, to play those games. Uh, but there were also, it, it ends up that there are unique reasons, there are unique factors, you know, like John Adams lost re-election because, f- first off, he was actually able to accomplish a lot more as president. You know, mm-hmm. he's navigating some pretty crazy things, some some wild international stuff because England and France are at war and, and they're trying to get the United States to pick a side and he's trying to stay out of it, you know. Uh, he, he does some good things. He does some bad things, you know, like the Alien and Sedition Acts, you know. Yeah. And the the net result of this, though, is is the Republicans simply win election. You know, it's their time. We see this all the time. It switches between the parties. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not so shocking. He, he perhaps could have managed it better, but maybe it's not so shocking that after essentially 12 years of Federalist rule, Washington did not say he was a Federalist, but he basically was a Federalist. Right. It's not shocking that the the uh, Democrats, Jefferson's Democratic Party would win. John Quincy Adams, on the other hand, you know, he didn't accomplish anything. I think he was just out of tune with the American people. Yeah. And it, 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 in his case, it comes from all that time he spent traveling Europe, which gave him this incredible perspective. Like, it's one of these things where, okay, do, do we elect people 
so that they will listen to everything the voters say? Or do we elect people because we trust their judgment and then they'll take care of what they'll do? John Quincy clearly in the mind of trust my judgment. You know, he had seen Europe. He has seen the universities there. He has seen the investments in like transit and transportation and stuff and what that's done for those economies. And so when he becomes president, he he goes out there and he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to invest in some uh, national university. We're going to invest in infrastructure. You know, that that's what we're going to. And the country was just like, no, we're not <laughs> like, like, dude, that's uh, that that sounds very not what the Jefferson Democrats are all about. We just want to be yeoman farmers, you know, like that was their <laughs> whole mantra. We just want to, like, uh, chill out, not pay taxes. Did you catch why we fought that revolution? You know, and, and I, I think that was kind of what undid John Quincy is he was a man out of his time and that he was asking for these things that now. If, if anything, the question is how much do we spend, you know, on infrastructure? We all know we got to do it. We all know that if, if you know, the federal government doesn't build a highway, there won't be a highway. And, oh, my God, how are things going to move around, you know? Right. But back then, it was like, there's rivers. People will paddle around. Like, who who cares? We don't, we're not spending on infrastructure. And so I think that was his undermining. So some similar things between the two men uh, and some different circumstances. Yeah. Well, I think, too, one of the things that struck me is, you know, for John Quincy, he seems like it's the first time that a president is elected without that that mandate. Right. You know, that's a big, huge, that's a big, huge, like political talking point. Right. Like, oh, we swept into the Congress and we swept into the White House. We have the people's mandate. Everybody supports us and supports our vision. And I think he's probably, you know, the first example of. Yeah, you didn't have any, nobody had your back. (laughs) Nobody wanted you here. Um, And so even because, you know, when you look at the stuff that he actually wanted to do, none of it was super controversial. He wanted to have consistent weights and measures. Woo. I mean, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I just feel like, you know, because he came in without that kind of will of the people behind him, right, is it, it gave Congress its excuse to be like, yeah, no, no matter what you you do, we, we're not going to really hear you because the people are behind you. Yeah. Like, if anything, he somehow won his election because of the way it happened. You know, he did not right. win the popular vote. He did not win the most electors. It went to the House. Mm-hmm. In the House, Henry Clay influenced states, including states that like he didn't he wasn't even on the ballot. Like they weren't even considering him. Henry Clay got those states to put him in the presidency. And then Henry Clay was made secretary of state. And so all of a sudden, if anything, the opposition had a mandate to just stick their thumb, you know, and, and, and not do anything he said. Right. So he entered with the stiffest opposition of probably any president ever. Right. You know, because you know, after that, presidents would be attached to the parties. And so if a president wins, they're probably riding a little bit of a wave. They probably right. got a little bit of momentum. Right. He, he did not have any of that. If anything, yeah. he was elected and then a whole bunch of people who were loyal to Jackson and also just like seeing the way the political winds were going. And John Quincy's not trying to build a party. J- uh, Jackson and Van Buren are. Let's connect ourselves to that train. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, kind of as we wrap up, one of the things that I've always that w- reading about both of these men and studying both of these men and, and kind of their their careers you know, I mentioned it at the top of the episode that John Adams in recent memory has kind of had a, a bit of a resurgence in terms of his legacy and his respect. And John Quincy, unfortunately, you know, does does not have that. He can't we can't bring bring that on. And, you know, when you look at these men, right, 
yes, John Adams definitely, I think, accomplished more during his presidency. But like, really, I think he's he's respected for the things that he did pre-presidency and the fact of yeah. how how he handled leaving the office, like that he left the office without, yep. you know, a fight. The power. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on perhaps why maybe John Adams survived a little bit with a, a better legacy for non-historian nerds like us <laughs> and yeah, why John I, Quincy did not. <laughs> you know, I feel like in, in general, uh, Americans, it's like, we're aware of the revolution. Mm-hmm. We're aware of the civil war. We're aware of world war two and the cold <laughs> war and today, you know? And so John Quincy Adams does not fall neatly on any of those events. John Adams does. True. And so we're aware, you know, and, and he's he's tied to all these things that we're all very much aware of. It's a huge part of our mythology, the American Revolution, the founding fathers, you know. Yeah. And John Quincy Adams is kind of adrift between these major events, the the American Revolution and the Civil War. And I think that's why he gets forgotten. I, I think it's, it's just a part of history that does not uh, catch as much attention. I, I will say, though, that, like, as I interview historians... I feel like they're they're usually right there, kind of kind of with me of like, oh yeah, John Quincy's awesome. <laughs> they they love John Quincy probably because of all the notes he left and like he makes their job easier. It's like read yes. his diary, you're halfway done with your project. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I think he's a favorite among historians, and because of that, I feel like it's just a matter of time. It's yeah. just a matter of time before one of these historians who really loves John Quincy Adams writes a book that takes off, and we get the John Quincy miniseries. Because I mean, just what a, like as we talked about. It's an incredible life that mm-hmm. this guy was a part of. It would make an amazing, you know, like HBO series. So someone hop on that. <laughs> David McCullough, if you're listening, <laughs> you wrote about the father, not right about the son. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. And as we wrap up our discussion, are there any other interesting tidbits you want to discuss or share? Um, I, I think. Just one other quick story. It's it's a John Quincy story, and it's one of my favorite stories from like early United Bring States. <laughs> is uh, you know around eighteen hundred or so, he's he's traveling around Europe as a young diplomat, and he shows up to Berlin, and he walks up to the guards at the gate, and they're like, "Who are you?" And he's like, "I'm uh, the diplomat from the United States of America," and they're like, "What's the United States of America?" <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't believe him. Like, they didn't believe that that was a country. And then like a senior guard had to come in and be like, that's a real place you can come in. And so just like the thought, like we, we are so used to being the superpower of the world. And it's very humbling to remember there was once a time when you could be a diplomat from the United States. You could be the son of the president and you could walk up to Berlin and be like, I'm from the United States. And they'd be like, that sounds made up. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, a good story. And I, I do like that one as well. I, yeah. I'm chuckled when I, when I read that in the book, I was like, ah, delightful. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so before I let you go, tell everybody where they can find you and your podcast. Uh, thank you so much. You can find me on Twitter at APH Podcast, uh, or you can find my show on basically any podcast platform. You know, just search for Abridged Presidential Histories on any of them, Apple, Spotify, what have you, uh, or you can go to aph.buzzsprout.com. That's like the main website. So yeah, please come find me. Give me a follow. Share it with your friends if you enjoy it. And uh, if you enjoy my show, leave a review to let me know. If you don't like my show, send me a private message. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes. 
I, I agree. Give, give the criticisms <laughs> in private. Don't don't air it out for everybody. And I'll make sure to put uh, the information about your show into the show notes for today's episode. Um, Thank you so and much. Of course, of course. And he's a great uh, Twitter Twitter follow, uh, everybody. He always tweets about great random presidential trivia, which I, I always thoroughly enjoy because I'm a big dork like that. So highly recommend following Kenny on Twitter and also obviously checking out a show. It's super interesting, very well put together. Um, So again, thank you so much, Kenny, for joining me today. And peeps, be sure to go find the Abridged Presidential Histories podcast wherever you listen to your shows. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now that you've listened to our conversation, be sure to go check Kenny out at the Abridged Presidential Histories podcast. I've included the link to his show in the show notes, or you can search for him wherever you get your podcasts. My sincerest thanks to Kenny for spending his time with me. Peeps, enjoy your day. I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm